part of Alabama caught our attention. Coal miners in one community, they've been on strike now for months. Working as long as 12 hours a day, seven days a week, in some of the most dangerous conditions. I really think that the labor movement is the single greatest force for democracy in the history of the United States. The story of Alabama is a story of not just resilience, but of militancy. I If we ain't all free, ain't none of us free. You're listening to Alabama's only union talk radio show, The Valley Labor Report, with Adam Keller and Jacob Morrison. So we are now in overtime, the second half of the program that is online only. You can only find it online, Facebook, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. We appreciate you sticking around for the second half of the show. Um... And uh, like we told you in the teaser, we've got some good stuff for you. Um, And so we're going to start off with this bit about um, Obama's new uh, Netflix special titled uh, Working, What We Do All Day. Um, Well, nice of him to ask, finally. Yeah. It's a four-part Netflix series um, that is uh, supposedly a documentary about, you know, working people and their lives and stuff like this. And if you have been following our show for any amount of time, you will know that actually uh, Maximilian Alvarez has been doing this for years on the Working People podcast. Um, So they have a huge backlog of interviews with working people about their lives, struggles, dreams, uh, all that kind of stuff. And it is a, uh, you know, really, really cool thing that Max does over there at Working People in the Real News. And um, and in collaboration with In These Times magazine as well. Yep, yep. And so, you know, uh, it's just super weird. I haven't seen it yet, but Max is watching it and he is going to be doing a big review for Descent Magazine and we're very excited for that review to come out uh, and we want to get him on the show to talk about this. Yeah. But it is, it's just, uh, uh, you know, I mean, so weird that he is an ex-president and instead of, you know, trying to be active and engaged in politics or even just generally like doing good and charitable things for people like uh, Jimmy Carter. Uh, He's trying to become like a media star. It's It's, well, it's very fitting. I think given the state of America, I think um, given his presidency, in some ways, it's not surprising to me. I think it it fits. It fits. uh, he was, uh, you know, he, Trump may have been uh, in some ways the first celebrity president, but I think Obama in, in a lot of ways was a precursor to that mm. and, you know, had a lot of media hype around him. Uh, more media hype than substance, I think his eight-year record would demonstrate. Uh, so, yeah, it's, it's kind of interesting, but not at all surprising to me that he would take this track and try to be a media mogul um yeah it makes sense 
Um, he's, Max, he's, he's been acting for a while. <laughs> yeah, right. Max transcribed a paragraph from the fourth episode, which is titled The Boss, um, where Obama says, quote, we see their faces on the news. We call some of them by their first names. We know their origin stories and follow their triumphs and defeats. Top business leaders today are more than just heads of companies. Some, at least, have become cultural figures, and with some companies now worth more than many countries, the people in charge are taking on roles that used to be reserved for heads of state, with extraordinary power to determine how we live. But we never see what they actually do. What does a CEO's work look like? What are the pressures and responsibilities they carry? And where are they taking us next? And... Max's Gross. commentary, yeah, Max's commentary is, is that it's just fascinating to hear him say this in a uh, tone of soothing matter-of-factness instead of horror or right. anger, which is the appropriate... Welcome to the new Gilded Age. Right. Hmm. Horror, anger, uh, disgust, uh, those are the correct emotions to have when you think about the fact that some top business leaders, quote unquote, are now taking on roles that used to be reserved for heads of state. That is something that you should not be able to say without a deep, deep anger, uh, because we are not supposed to live in a monarchy. Anymore. Or an oligarchy. Or an oligarchy. We're supposed to be a democracy. And when people can, by virtue of their wealth, begin taking on roles that used to be reserved by uh, for by heads of state, we are, I mean, genuinely approaching uh, oligarchic rule, oligarchic type rule. And and it, it, it I mean, in a real, like, a, a, a an actual sense, in a literal sense. And so... But uh, but Obama is like, oh, you know, this is kind of interesting. But this what if we what if we took a peek behind the curtain of <laughs> yeah. the oligarchs' lives? What is what is it like to be one of the handful of evil people who control the world? What is yeah. it really like? What what do they have for breakfast? Yeah, you know, probably babies. But <laughs> um, <laughs> just kidding, just kidding. In Minecraft, um. Here's another quick update uh, that we can get to before we talk to Will. Um, HB 209 passed the Senate last week uh, in Alabama. House Bill 209 in Alabama. That's the bill that we've been tracking for a several weeks now uh, that has that deals with voting and criminalizing help for people, uh, particularly in the absentee ballot process. But it did pass with an amendment. So, Adam, talk to us about that amendment and and what is left in the bill now. Yeah, so there were some changes to it to make it a little less extreme uh, and just bonkers, which, you know, it has been. Uh, so, yeah, I'm looking here at what actually was changed. Um, I know a couple more exceptions were added in terms of family. Uh, that's something that they talked a lot about was, you know, allowing you to help family members with the absentee process. So Jamie Keel is the state rep, and he, he said it could be your mother, father, son, daughter, cousin, aunt, uncle, nephew, niece, any of those folks related to them. They could help. Not only that, but they could have the probate judge in their county or someone from their probate judge's office to help them. Uh, so he's selling this as actually it's not going to be that much of a barrier 
you still have plenty of options uh, if you need help with an absentee ballot or application. Um, and so I, I just I don't get it. I still don't get it. Uh, he says that the purpose of the bill is very simple. It's to make sure that our balloting process, the election process in Alabama is as secure as possible. Most of the cases where there's voter voter fraud across the country or in early voting, the voting day is very secure. Most of the time when there's fraud that happens, it happens early. Uh, he points to no evidence. Right. He points to no evidence that there is fraud happening with absentee voting in Alabama. Uh, but the disabled community, the blind community, senior citizen community, uh, voting rights organizations, I mean, the Na National Federation of the Blind, League of Women Voters, Lions Club International, Blinded Veterans Association are some of the uh, organizations that asked him to withdraw this bill. Mm. OK. Uh, and as Kathy Jones, president of the League of Women Voters of Alabama, said, if passed, Alabama would make felons of law abiding people who are volunteering, volunteering to help others be prepared to vote. And, you know, I think that's. That's just that's that's insane. It's mm -hmm. insane. Um, and so, yeah, there were some extra e exceptions presented. Uh, if, if I remember right, there may have been uh, some weakening of the criminal charges. Hmm. Uh, yeah, it, I, it took I, it from like a class uh, D felony or something to a class A misdemeanor, I think. Yeah, the committee approved an amendment to remove distribution as a violation and to change the punishment level in Section 1 of the bill from a felony to a misdemeanor. Uh, still not very reassuring, though, that you could be charged with a misdemeanor for helping someone out in getting or obtaining right. or, you know, submitting their absentee ballot. Uh, and I think this, this goes back to some of what we talked about with Faith in Action Alabama, that... Uh, I wonder if some of this is to deliberately defund voting registration groups mm. um, and groups that are active in registering and assisting voters on the margins. Um, you know, why? Uh, you know, only they could truly answer because the elections are not at all competitive. They're winning by 20, 30 percent. Uh so it's not as if there are elections that are hanging in the balance of this supposed fraud that they right. cannot demonstrate actually exist. But the communities impacted are, are being very explicit in how this is going to impact them, how it's going to criminalize their work, how it could criminalize their helping of their neighbors, uh, and how so many people do depend on absentee voting as their their primary means of participating in the electoral process. Uh, so, yeah, I, I'm disappointed that it advanced out of committee. It is going before the full Senate of Alabama. Uh, they are down to the remaining days of the session. So that's good news in that it may not make it across the finish line before the end of the session. Uh, but it really would uh, be great if folks in the Alabama Senate heard from their constituents about this bill. Mm -hmm. uh, so I really encourage folks to check out our previous coverage of, uh, of HB 209, why it's a bad piece of legislation, why it's going to impact working people, uh, why it's going to impact the work that our unions and other organizations do. So check out some of that, that previous coverage. And if you are in Alabama, please do talk to your state senator 
Uh, I've contacted my <clears throat> state senator so far, no response, <clears throat> uh, but really encourage y'all to do the same. Yep. Uh, so we've got Will on the line? Let's see. I don't think we have Will on the line yet. Okay. So that's okay. We'll see. Yeah, no uh, hopefully he'll join us soon. Yeah. And uh, then later this morning, we have Clayton from the Catholic Labor Network coming on the show. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, we've got two more guests here in overtime. Uh, what you want to talk about next? Yeah, David? well, let's, uh, let's go ahead and get to the um, song and film of the month. Sure. Talk to us Let's about do that. that. Let's do that. Uh, so we've been doing this this year, uh, highlighting a labor song and a labor film each month, uh, just because I think it's it's interesting to me, frankly. Uh, I always am interested in how labor and workers are depicted in our media. And I think, you know, our media plays a big role in our lives and how we pass our time and how we see ourselves depicted uh, for other people. So it's relevant, I think, in that respect. And we know the way in which media shapes people's perspectives and ideas and uh, thoughts and beliefs even. So uh, this month, the month of May, when picking the labor film and song, I really had May Day on my mind, uh, the International Workers' Day. So I went with choices that I associate with May Day. and for May's Labor Film of the Month, I'm highlighting one of my favorite movies, Reds. Uh, Reds is a 1981 American epic historical drama film co-written, produced, and directed by Warren Beatty about the life and career of John Reed, the journalist and writer who chronicled the October Revolution in Russia and his 1919 book, Ten Days That Shook the World. Beatty stars in the lead role alongside Diane Keaton as Louise Bryant, and Jack Nicholson as Eugene O'Neill. I'm partial to this movie uh, for a lot of reasons. Uh, I'm partial to it because I read 10 Days That Shook the World as a teenager uh, when I was just getting into politics and working class history. I picked up that book and it really you know, stuck with me, uh, made an impact on me. So obviously a, a movie about the author, John Reed, is right up my alley. Uh, there's some really great acting from everyone involved. It's got a you know it's got an ensemble cast and some great acting from Beatty, Nicholson, Keaton, the supporting cast. And it was kind of the last of its kind. Um, it was you know one of these really big epic films with an intermission and everything. Uh, and those were really big in like the 50s, and they came back for a while in the 70s. Um, and this was sort of the last of that era coming when it did in 1981. Uh, I've always liked the big Hollywood epics personally. I'm not, I'm not scared of an intermission. Uh, it's, you know, it is harder to watch when you're a busy person, you've got kids, that kind of thing. It's harder to find, you know, three hours for a film versus an hour and a half. But, um, mm. uh, if done right, I think it's worth the time and investment. And I really like, uh, an epic film done right and and reds is one of those and i also think it's really interesting and just amazing to me that it it happened in the shadow of ronald reagan right we get this epic film set largely amidst the russian revolution and the main hero is a militant leftist uh, a writer a journalist an activist an agitator 
And I think that's really interesting to me um, that you've got this big Hollywood film with the subject matter happening as, you know, you have this rightward turn in the country. One of the cool things about the film is that it features witnesses. Uh, so in between scenes, you'll get these occasional uh, bits of interview footage with folks who are from the time period. Uh, some who knew the characters personally, others were involved in the movement at the time. And so as a history guy, I really enjoyed this. Uh, I don't think it took away from the film at all. I think it added to the film. Uh, and yeah, I really enjoyed those interviews and getting to hear more about, you know, life at the turn of the century, life in the teens uh, and the 20s and, and uh, you know, from contemporary folks of that time. And that's really a cool thing about the film. So Reds is my labor film of the month. It is a great story of one of America's greatest journalists who, you know, covered labor organizing in this country and then covered revolutionary organizing in Mexico and then, uh, as in this film, largely in Russia. So he had an eyewitness account to some of the most, you know, important events in history. He was there on the ground during the Mexican Revolution. Uh, he witnessed, he was involved in some of the IWW organizing and uh, militant labor organizing of the teens in the early uh, 1900s. And then he was there in Russia uh, as the Russian Revolution popped off uh, and, you know, was uh, there both as a writer and as a participant, really. Um, and so you get an interesting account. I like the movie a lot. Uh, you know, it's Hollywood, so... Take it with a grain of salt, of course. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, I think it's a great film. It's 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 a great film about our working class history and, and heritage. Awesome. And on that note uh, of working class history and heritage, I think I want to highlight uh, one song in particular for Labor Song of the Month of May, which is Solidarity Forever. Um, can't believe I haven't picked this one already. But um, Solidarity Forever was written by Ralph Chaplin in 1915. And, of course, it is sung to the tune of John Brown's Body and the Battle Hymn of the Republic. It originally started out as a song for the IWW, the Industrial Workers of the World, but has now become adopted by union movements all over the globe. Uh, the song has been performed by all sorts of musicians, um, I'm partial to the Pete Seeger version myself, but I've got to say that the absolute best version of Solidarity Forever is the one that you and your sisters and brothers sing uh, together. Uh, so if you ever are at a union convention, you're at a strike, you're at an action of some kind and or a gathering of some kind, and you have the opportunity with your union sisters and brothers to sing Solidarity Forever, together it's a very cool experience uh, and to me that's the best version of the song um, so yeah solidarity forever uh, that's the song of the month um, I encourage folks to check it out read the lyrics uh, I love the lyrics of solidarity forever um, I think it really says a lot in one song um, and really speaks to what we're all about uh, so here, here are the lyrics of Solidarity Forever. 
When the union's inspiration through the workers' blood shall run, there can be no power greater anywhere beneath the sun. Yet what force on earth is weaker than the feeble strength of one, but the union makes us strong. And uh, later in the song, what I really like is there ought we hold in common with the greedy parasite who would lash us into serfdom and would crush us with his might? Is there anything left to us but to organize and fight? It is we who plowed the prairies, built the cities where they trade, dug the mines and built the workshops, endless miles of railroad laid. Now we stand outcast and starving midst the wonders we have made, but the union makes us strong. They have taken untold millions that they never toiled to earn, but without our brain and muscle, not a single wheel can turn. We can break their haughty power, gain our freedom when we learn that the union makes us strong. So, uh, oh, I gotta, I gotta read the, the final lines. In our hands is placed a power greater than their hoarded gold, greater than the might of armies multiplied a thousandfold. We can bring to birth a new world from the ashes of the old, for the union makes us strong. Love me some solidarity forever. That's the song of the month. Reds is the film of the month. There we go, folks. Awesome. So are we waiting on Will still? Yeah, no Will this morning. Okay. So, um, well, I guess we'll just uh, assume that he, something happened. He's not able to make it. Hope yeah, okay. yeah. Hope everything's cool. <clears throat> yeah. Well, so then let's talk about this. Uh, a couple weeks ago the Education Trust Fund budget was passed by the Senate. Uh, and it has it passed the House yet? Uh, you know, there were some developments late this week. Uh, so I cannot say for certain whether it has. Uh, yeah, I'll be looking at that up, actually. So it was a big budget, biggest in the history of the state, which is, you know, saying biggest in the history of the state is really not that strange because presumably... Every year is going to be the biggest because of inflation, right? You're going to <laughs> increase by at least the rate of inflation, presumably or hopefully. Um, but but it is a you know a multi billion dollar budget, and there was a fifteen million dollar line item that really stuck in the craw of one Justin Bogey at eighteen nineteen News. Uh, that fifteen million dollar line item is a proposed minimum wage for school support staff. So think lunch ladies, janitors, secretaries, folks like that, right? And uh, you're gonna want to make sure you're sitting down for this, folks. Uh, a minimum wage for school support staff of fifteen dollars an hour. Wow. Yeah. Uh, pretty crazy, but um. Now, somehow, Justin is, he is able to keep his composure enough to talk about this uh, real problem on the radio. So let's hear what he had to say on a radio program in Birmingham. The $15 million appropriation would go towards a quote-unquote support staff salary stipend. What the heck is this? Yeah, this is something that's really kind of picked up steam the last few weeks, uh, but, but basically... You know, some of your education support employees, bus drivers, uh, janitorial workers, cafeteria workers, uh, secretaries, th those types of jobs are, uh, they're basically pushing for a minimum wage, a $15 minimum wage. And so, you know, this, obviously, we haven't had a, a minimum wage besides the federal wage for 
uh, those types of employees before, but really our, uh, the, the AEA has really gotten behind this and, and they're leading the effort to, uh, you know, uh, presumably when this bill crosses over to the House and it starts moving through the House, then uh, get that put in there. They're trying to set up a salary scale for, for all these hourly employees, basically. Um, and, you know, I, I think it raises interesting questions. You know, no one's saying that these aren't valuable employees, that, that they don't in some ways keep schools running. You know, obviously you couldn't, you can't have a school if you can't get students there and you can't feed them and, and those types of things. But really, uh, the, the issue of, of the state sort of deciding which hourly employees are, are more important than others, you know, i.e. the private sector, the private sector minimum wage is seven uh, fifty an hour, and, and we're not talking about raising it for all private sector employees. So, uh, you know, is government kind of using their power? And, and obviously AEA has a large uh, constituency and, and a powerful voting block. So yeah. are they using their power to try to get hourly, this, these increases in hourly wages for those employees? Now, he says in there, no one is saying these aren't valuable employees in questioning whether or not they deserve $15 an hour, but that's explicitly what he's doing, right? And (laughs) also questioning the very need for a state minimum salary or, you know, hourly pay matrix. Right. Um, Questioning why there would need to be a minimum for them, a state minimum. Yeah. Uh, and, And just for context... Teachers, nurses, counselors, librarians, there is a state salary matrix in Alabama that districts have to follow mm-hmm. or go above and beyond. Right. right? You, you, you have to at least pay the matrix, and it has it clearly laid out, your years of experience, step one, two, three, four, five, all the way through, uh, and how much you would make with the appropriate degree. Mm-hmm. Um, support <clears throat> staff do not have that. And so it varies sometimes pretty, you know, significantly between school districts from, you know, district to district. There are Mm -hmm. over 100 school districts in the state of Alabama. Uh, So that means, you know, over 100 different ways in which uh, these support staff are being paid. And, you know, they say that's a bad thing that uh, we want that that folks would want to change that. Um, You know, that's that's revealing i think uh right. to question well <clears throat> yeah well and and this is the real slimy thing right because he's not se- i'm i'm not questioning that they're valuable employee i'm not questioning their value i'm not saying they don't deserve that necessarily i'm just asking you know i'm just saying should they you know i don't know and that's so I mean, annoying to me right just say yeah. it with you, your you, damn you, chest right you literally are questioning that's right exactly what you're doing just be honest about it and say you don't want to have those people be paid well. Right. And the issue with this is, is you know, and, and they mention kind of derisively that, you know, schools have the summer off. And so, you know, a lot of these support staff aren't going to be working during the summer. But I, I could, you know, I mean, somebody still has to clean the schools yeah, during depen- the summer. It depends. Uh, yeah. It depends. Just like, uh, you know, with the certified employees, some support staff are non-month. Or mm-hmm. considered nine month, ten month, eleven month, or twelve month, and it right. just depends on you know the situation. Uh, I know schools are off for the summer, quote unquote, but uh, anyone who's in the school uh, universe knows that schools are still pretty busy places throughout the summer. There's summer school, there's mm-hmm. summer learning programs, right. uh, there's summer feeding <clears throat> programs. Mm. Uh, there are you know different uh, community things that happen at the schools, right? 
churches and community organizations rent the school buildings throughout right. the summer. A lot happens. Uh, but really what irritates me the most is like, wow, are they doing politics? <laughs> right, yeah. Are people actually <laughs> arguing that they should do something with government money? Yeah. Yeah, y- yes, yes, uh, that is happening, right. and it's called politics, and it's what happens every day in Montgomery. That was and so crazy to me. Is the AEA using their power to try to get raises for those employees? Like, yes, you dumbass, That's obviously. what they're supposed to do. Um, <laughs> that's what they're supposed to do. Right. Well, my- they're doing the same thing that you freaks are doing, except you are trying to use your power and the coke money that backs you to try to make sure that these people get less than they deserve. And so these people are coming together uh, it, through a professional organization that AEA doesn't like to be called a union. And instead of some billionaire throwing their money uh, against things that will help working people, these are working people to come together, giving a little bit every paycheck, and using that collectively to, uh, yes, use their power to advocate for their lives to be better. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, and, uh, you know, schools should not be contributing to poverty. All right? We know, as we mentioned earlier in this in this show, we talked about the ways in which poverty impacts educational outcomes of children why would school employees be condemned to poverty right. if we know in education the impact that poverty plays on children, right? Mm-hmm. Why would we doom the families of custodians and cafeteria right. workers and bus drivers and all the other critical components of a functioning school? He right. admits, yeah, we're not going to have school without them. Right. That's exactly right. You right. won't have school without them, right? They are there to take care of, uh, of the state's children. Mm-hmm. That's what they do, and they allow their they allow functioning public schools to happen. They're asking for a a living wage. That is not an a, a lot to ask for. Uh, they're asking for a minimum wage, right? So that districts can't undercut each other so bad mm-hmm. that um, you know you've got districts that are paying just terrible wages to folks, right? Um, and I think this you know, is is a positive step in a lot of ways. Um, I think it's going to improve people's lives. Absolutely. Uh, it's, I, and it's, it's going to spe- improve the community, right? Because right. these folks are going to have a little bit more money to spend. Um, maybe some of them will be able to live off their, their one job and not have to work, mm-hmm. you know, as many jobs. Because a lot of these support staff are working two, three, four right. jobs. They're working for the school system mostly to get benefits mm-hmm. and then having to do something else to get cash <clears throat> uh, right. to actually pay their bills. And so, um, you know, it, it's uh, it's just gross that that's even a problem with these people. Yeah, it, it's it's so gross. Uh, and and so later in that segment, uh, they start to deride school's performance. And so, you know. Uh, let's play this clip and see if this argument is a bit more compelling than, you know, just kind of shyly saying, oh, you know, I'm not saying they're not valuable. I'm just asking questions. Mm. Let's see if this argument has a little bit more heft. We've been dumping more and more money into education for the last decade or so, really longer than that. They've seen huge increases in their budget. We really haven't seen uh, different results. And, And, you know, part of the 
thought in the in the last few years has been to give teachers pay raises because that helps. You know, in theory, they think that's going to help improve outcomes. There really hasn't proven has not. to do so in, in other states that have done it. it it's not working here. Uh, you know, obviously, there's some aspect of that where you want to retain your your best teachers, but you know, when you're giving uh, across the board raises, uh, but but something that's sort of missed in that, you know, pretty much every time, I think it's five uh, raises in six years for for teachers, but oftentimes these hourly employees are uh, included in in those pay raises. So, you know, I think there's there's a legitimate question of of whether or not a lot of these people would would, uh, already be making close to $15 an hour anyways. And obviously some of that's dependent on what district you're in, what city you're in, uh, those types of things. But if you just look at the averages, they're, they're already making close to uh, $15 an hour, and, and that's assuming that they work 52 weeks a year, 40 hours a week, which, which they know, don't. No, no school operates at those kinds of hours. So, um, But, again, it's really it's really down to you know the state kind of picking winners and losers here and, and choosing to pay state employees or quasi-state employees uh, a higher hourly wage than a lot of private sector people are making. Yeah, so uh, there were this is some really stupid shit. I just got to yeah, say. I mean, um, yeah, it, it you you wonder how much he believes this kind of stuff or or how much he he's just putting on the act. And and you also well, have to wonder. One, yeah, uh, because like there's right-wingers out there who have some, you know, intellectual might uh, right. at least to some degree or you know, th- there are right-wingers out there with at least arguments. You also have to wonder how much he gets paid for this nonsense, because yeah. uh, presumably he's making more than fifteen an hour, right? Uh, yeah, you would think. Yeah, uh, yeah everything <sighs> about it was stupid and wrong. Uh, well, frankly. so let let's go uh, point by point. You know, the first thing that he said is is look, man. Uh, you know, the Republicans took over the state legislature in twenty eleven, and since then they've just been throwing money at the education system. And shucks, it just hasn't gotten better. It's funny how they always forget about the first half of that decade. And, <laughs> you know, they, they focus on the second half of that decade where there has been, you know, consistent increases in the budget. They forget about what happened before that, which was Alabama had some of the steepest cuts to public education in the entire country. Some of the steepest in the entire country. Very deep cuts to public education in the state of Alabama took place uh, for several years. And so the last five or six years where there have been some, you know, positive growth each year has really just mm-hmm. been catching up. It's right. just catching up from previous austerity uh, is what it is. Um, and to say nothing of the actual needs in the state. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so there's a whole conversation to be had there about, well, what is good funding? What, you right. know, what is adequate funding? Uh, you're you're pretending as if we're throwing money at it right now. So you're presumably you think they are overfunded. You think schools are overfunded in the state of Alabama, right? Uh, or if not, at least you know appropriately funded. And so, you know, what about the needs in Alabama? Does every school have the counselors it needs and the librarians it needs? Does every special education student in the state of Alabama have access to the instructional assistance that they need? I'm just asking questions. Is every playground safe in the state of Alabama? Is every water supply in these schools safe? Do they have nurses in these schools? Um, What about social workers? 
What about those? We have any of those? Mm-hmm. So, you know, there there's a lot you could you could get into when you're talking about funding of education. Um, you know, we don't even have universal pre-K. It's right. 2023, <clears throat> and we don't even have universal pre-K access in the state of Alabama. Right. Uh, you know that, and that's a true shame. It's a shame, and it negatively impacts our communities and our families. Uh, and that's the sort of policy agenda that these folks are pushing. Mm-hmm. The other argument that he's making is that um, you know uh, they've just got it so much better than private sector employees. Um, they it, he mentioned that five of the last six years they've gotten raises, <laughs> um, and the host is like stunned by this. Um, and, and, uh, in his article about this, Justin says that few private sector hourly employees could say the same about getting five raises in the last six years. And that's actually like, I mean, that's really not true because that's a fact of the matter question. They either, either hourly employees are getting raises similar to these, uh, um, education workers in Alabama, or they're not. Uh, and we can just look at it, and, and they are. In the private sector, wages have risen faster than wages have risen in the education sector in Alabama. Um, I mean, so just just as a fact of the matter, he is incorrect. He is incorrect. Just in the last year, when they got a 4% pay raise, uh, hourly wages in the private sector rose by 4.8%. Hmm. Right. And so these are just this is the and that's before senior... we factor in inflation. Right. Right. Where these wages are not even. Keeping yeah. Up both with of the increased these costs of living. Right. In the private sector and the public sector, these are actually effective wage cuts. But this is the senior policy and budget analyst. And this is just such a quick claim that that he's willing to make, presumably without having done the slightest bit of research, it is really bizarre to, yeah, to be willing I, to sorry. say. I think I've shat out more sophisticated analysis yeah. of Alabama schools than this guy. What a joke. Um, and then he, and then he says, um, I do wonder why the discussed proposal is for government employees who are part of the powerful lobby when too little is being done to support the private sector. You oppose raising the minimum <laughs> right. wage for them. I mean, it's just crazy. I, I agree. We should right. have at least a bare minimum $15 hour minimum wage across the board. Private sector, public sector, whoever. Right. You are, you are against that. You are against letting cities do that. Mm-hmm. Okay? Yeah. I mean, don't just, come at me with that. No, that's slimy. ridiculous. Yeah, it, like just throwing private sector employees up as a shield so that public sector employees don't get paid. Right, just to stoke resentment right. amongst sectors of the working class, of yeah. which you are not part of, in which you're not an ally of, you're not a friend to the working class. Yeah, really crazy stuff. Crazy stuff there. Well. Support staff in edu- in uh, Alabama's education system absolutely do deserve a pay raise. They deserve a minimum pay matrix. Uh, they deserve yeah. a fair step raise policy because that was another issue I dealt with a lot in the school system where uh, because they did not have the same system as the certified employees, they didn't necessarily have the same promises in terms mm. of step increases. Right. And where you landed on the step uh, schedule could be anybody's guess mm-hmm. um and so fair transparent uh policies when it comes to pay raises and step increases 
that's needed. Right. And and I think that's not a lot to ask for the folks who keep our schools functioning and running every day. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, have we got Clayton in the Zoom? Not yet. No, okay. not yet. All right. Let's um, hit... Uh, let's see. We're running out of topics to talk about, no, but we did get. No, we forget. We've well, we've still got. Um, we've got a couple more, but not yeah, too we much do. More, but that's fine. Uh, we have a uh, uh, infinite content. Uh, sent us a text message. We didn't open up the phone lines again. I, I don't yeah, know. Yeah, I, I couldn't what get it. I could is. not get it working yeah. right. But he did send us a text um, regarding the Tupperville stuff. Uh, so if these states want to force Christian ideologies on public school students, can we charge the lawmakers the Muslim uh, Jia tax? Uh, and with book bans, why isn't the Bible at the top of the list? Yeah, I mean, well, because they're uh, Christian theocrats is the answer. Yeah, yeah. I think, you know, I've seen them described as Christian nationalists, and I think that's probably a pretty apt description. Right. Um Oddly enough, you know, we're planning on talking to the Catholic Labor Network here in a minute, so maybe <laughs> yeah. we can get into to a little bit of that. You know, such drastic differences in terms of mm-hmm. Christianity and uh, how it's reflected in our politics and our country. Uh, yeah, it's uh, it's a real shame, and Tuberville is a real, real creep. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Uh, but. You know, it is something that's interesting, though, about that that comment in terms of Muslims. You know, there is nothing stopping Muslims from taking advantage of these very same private school voucher programs and charter schools and all this other stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's nothing stopping them from going the same route. Right. And I just wonder how some of these folks are going to feel when their tax dollars are supporting Islamic schools, mm. right? They're not, they're not upset about it supporting their church schools, right? But what happens when it's other people's churches, right? Yeah, uh, of course. What if, what if the Unitarians decide mm. to start uh, a very radical, critical race theory infused <laughs> private school? Yeah, you going to be okay with your tax dollars going to those scholarships? Just, just asking questions, you know? Right. Uh, and we do have Clayton on the line, I believe. So, uh, All right. Let's go ahead and get him in. And sure. Yeah, so uh, Clayton is from the Catholic Labor Network. He's the executive director. Uh, Clayton, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us. Hi, good to see you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, start off by, you know, just introducing yourself and your journey in the labor movement. Okay. Uh, my name is Clayton Sinyai. And uh, my first uh, contact uh, with the labor movement, um, aside from family connections, my father was a factory mechanic in uh, Bridgeport, Connecticut, a member of the IUE. But uh, personally, I first encountered the labor movement um, in Chicago uh, when uh, I was working in a rubber factory. One of my coworkers was sent up. It was a non-union shop. And one of my coworkers was sent up in the hopper of a, a large rubber compounding machine um, to clean it out with a with a, a solvent that he shouldn't have been using in a confined space. And the fella passed out, and an ambulance came, and OSHA came out and uh, asked uh, the fella uh, all kinds of things about what was going on at the factory uh, when he was in the hospital, and uh, um, he told everything he knew. 
And the company was pretty mad about that afterward. And uh, the fella, Marcelino Cervantes, uh, decided uh, that uh, the place needed a union. And he connected with uh, the laborers union, LIUNA, um, which is primarily construction laborers, but uh, also represents uh, a number of people in manufacturing and in the public sector. And they tried an organizing campaign and I joined his, uh, joined the organizing committee. Um, we were not successful, but, uh, um, and, and I moved on from that work to uh, carry mail at the post office for a while and work for the railroad at the Chicago Northwestern Railroad when it was still around um, for some time. And then I went back to school and uh, after finishing my education, uh, uh, was fortunate enough to land a job on staff at Layuna. So uh, did a lot of different things there. Um, some communications, some politics, some organizing. Uh, um, but uh, that's, uh, I am uh, a member of Layuna to this day. Uh, uh, at currently, I'm actually employed at something at, an, at a nonprofit institution called the Center for Construction Research and Training. Uh, this is a, a nonprofit that the National Building Trades Union set up to do health and safety research for the construction industry. Okay, cool. That's awesome. Yeah, uh, love to hear that. Our local Liuna is a sponsor of the show, actually. Uh, local 366 here in Huntsville and Sheffield. Um, oh, fantastic. So, yeah. And so, you know, how does your, how did your, uh, uh, faith interact with your work in the labor movement? You know, has it always been, uh, ha have you never really felt any contradictions in that? Did you, you know, grow up Catholic and, and this was always kind of part of it? Or did you sort of, uh, you know, rediscover a faith? Um, uh, I guess I could uh, tell the story either way. Uh, I was born and raised Catholic. Uh, did not realize until I was an adult that it had a lot to do with uh, the problems that I was seeing in the workplace. Um, uh, as uh, like many Catholics, I did not realize um, as a young person, uh, because I was not taught, uh, that my church had uh, a long and well-established uh, teaching on the right of workers to organize in unions and the right of every worker uh, to enjoy a living wage. Uh, this comes out of uh, this. This uh, uh, teaching is uh, dates back to 1891 and the beginning of the industrial or the in, during the industrial revolution, uh, when the church, uh, when Pope Leo the Thirteenth, uh, then Pope, uh, looked at what was happening in the industrial revolution and looking at how it was creating a divide between uh, a small number of people who uh, uh, were wealthy and owned the means of production and a much larger group. Uh, that was uh, working for wages and uh, came out with uh, an encyclical called Rerum Novarum concerning the new things. And uh, they, he was talking about the new, the changes that were happening in society and uh, uh, how that uh, uh, worker justice could be upheld um, in a modern, in the modern era. And he saw labor unions as, as a big part of that. Now, uh, I came to learn about this uh, as an adult, as I learned more about my faith, and it explained a lot about what I was seeing in the factory and elsewhere. Um, and that was how uh, uh, I became interested and uh, first connected with the Catholic Labor Network. 
Yeah, and so talk to us about the network. You know what what it, what is it? What do y'all do? And 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 stuff like that. The the Catholic Labor Network um, came together. Uh, I I should say because of this church teaching um, for most of uh, the the uh, um, uh, because of this because of this church teaching at the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops, which is kind of the uh, uh, which serves the same role for the bishops that the AFL-CIO does for the labor movement. It represents the collective interests of the church in the United States and specifically the bishops. Um, they uh, up through the 1950s and 60s and 70s and 80s, there was usually someone in the uh, working at the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops uh, who uh, worked closely with the labor unions. Um, the last person to hold that position retired in the late 80s, or early 90s. Now, at the same time, uh, there was a labor struggle going on in Decatur, Illinois, which uh, those of us who are old enough will probably remember. Uh, it was the Staley workers who were locked out for, for years um, uh, by their employer, a multinational uh British-owned multinational called Tate and Lyle that uh, owned a lot of uh, sugar and corn syrup processing facilities. And uh, uh, during this lockout, those workers traveled around the country spreading news of their fight. And a number of Catholic priests and Catholic trade union activists who uh, um, met one another during that campaign uh, started saying to themselves, since there's no one, no one at the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops anymore who's main job it is to uh, uphold Catholic social teaching on labor and work and to liaison with the labor unions, we should start our own network. So uh, we started this organization, the Catholic Labor Network. Um, I got connected with it uh, um, a couple of years after it started back in the back in the 90s and have been involved ever since. And we exist to share with one another um, and try to educate other Catholics about what their church teaches about labor and labor unions and uh, educate other Catholics about conditions of labor uh, for those of us who work. So, you know, being in Alabama, um, we don't know, you know, we don't run into just a whole lot of, of Catholics, but there are some particularly here in Huntsville. And a lot of them are, are very uh, conservative. Uh, not only theologically, but politically. And so they might see <clears throat> a, a Catholic labor network as potentially uh, something that is, that is left-wing and therefore bad and not Christian, not Catholic. Uh, do you see so, uh, that kind of reception from more conservative Catholics to your labor network? Or have, is that maybe less of a phenomenon than... Uh, than our experience down here would would lead us to believe. I think it's uh, I think today it's a little less of a phenomenon uh, than uh, you might expect. Um, it's not unheard of to run into this, uh, especially if we and and certainly it's something that comes uh, up a lot um, with organizations that get in a lot get involved in uh, a lot of political advocacy on on a lot of causes. The Catholic Labor Network uh, um, is uh, a little different than that. We are um, under canon law, under under church canon law. Uh, we are an association of the faithful, 
and we are committed uh, to uh, uh, we are folk. Our our mission is promoting Catholic social teaching on labor and work, uh, and we don't go outside of uh, that particular function. And I find that opens a lot of doors with people who are, uh, whether they're on the right or the left, uh, a lot of uh, the people who are conservative on social issues um, that uh, and, and have no use for the Democratic Party, nonetheless have some sympathy with labor unions. And certainly when they learn that church teaching uh, upholds labor unions, that becomes important. It's uh, it's it's an, we're able to talk to some of these people in a way that uh, um, uh, progressive activists elsewhere may not be able to. And I think that sort of bridge building is is really important uh, and is something that you know that that labor has to do. I mean, it's it's almost kind of like uh, tautologically like a part of unions is to build, build bridges and, and, uh, uh, unite, uh, in a union people who, uh, may have, you know, disparate beliefs about this or that thing. Um, but, but getting them to, you know, not only come together for their, uh, narrow economic interests in one workplace, but also to, you know, humanize their coworkers and see that, uh, that, yeah, you know, not only do we have, maybe economic interests in, in, um, in common, but we also have a lot of, of our humanity in common. Right. And, and I think that, uh, that there's definitely an important role for, uh, for Christian or religious organizations to play in, um, you know, in, in that part of labor. Um, that's absolutely true. Um, the, the Catholic Church is kind of in an unusual position in today's uh, polarized climate uh, because, uh, and, and I work with people in other faith traditions to do labor solidarity work a good deal. Um, most religious denominations uh, today, it seems like, have fallen on one or the other side of the political divide. Um, that there are uh, uh, red faiths and blue faiths uh, in this in this country today. That uh, um, most of the mainstream uh, Protestant churches, uh, most Jewish congregations uh, tend to uh, lean uh, blue and uh, affiliate uh, without a lot of discomfort uh, with the Progressive Coalition. And then there are a lot of evangelical congregations uh, that. Uh, skew red and uh, don't seem to have any problem affiliating with uh, conservative uh, causes. Um, the Catholic Church is in an unusual position because uh, um, we're, we're a bit of a purple church. Uh, we have uh, a very conservative uh, set of teachings uh, regarding uh, sex and the family, uh, conservative in today's political environment, I would say. Uh, and uh, very um, uh, left or progressive positions on the environment and the rights of workers uh, and our obligations to the poor. And uh, as Catholics, uh, if you're trying to be faithful to the, the whole teaching of the church, um, uh, you've got a challenge in this political environment. Um, but uh, uh, again, we're able to, to, we try to speak to people on, on both sides of that divide um, uh, from the perspective of their Catholic faith, uh, and, uh, what it actually teaches. 
Uh, we got a comment in the chat from the president of the Nashville Central Labor Council, uh, uh, Vonda McDaniel. Uh, she said that the Catholic Labor Network has been a great partner in uh, Middle Tennessee. Um, so I, her endorsement definitely means a lot to me. And so, you know, moving. has been wonderful to work with. Yeah, yeah, she's great. Um, she's been on the show at least once, maybe maybe a couple times, but uh, um, uh, uh, really, really great unionist stuff there. Um, and so, you know, moving from some of the some of the abstract stuff about, you know, oh, what do we believe? What are the ideas in our heads? Um, you know, there is uh, there was an opportunity for a Catholic institution to kind of apply some of this teaching, and that was at Loyola. Loyola. And uh, my understanding is that y'all were um, either involved with or supportive of the union effort there, uh, but the institution was opposed to it and and opposed these people's unionization, and, and they were able to win their unionization in the face of opposition. But uh, it, can you give us kind of the backstory of, of that campaign, and how is it that this Catholic institution seemingly, you know, from the outside, right? I can't, I'm not an expert on Catholic social teaching, but it, it, uh, I'm not a Catholic, but it, it just seems like they really kind of explicitly went against the teaching of the church in the way that they treated these workers in their election campaign. And so, uh, so yeah, can you explain wh uh, what happened there and, and the way that they were able to kind of contradict the, the social teachings? I, I'm not sure that's a fair description of, uh, um, uh, the uh, institution in this case. Um, we have run into situations where uh, um, uh, Catholic institutions, uh, where we've had to call out Catholic institutions for actual union busting activity. Um, and, and that's unfortunate. Uh, what happened at Loyola is a, is, is a little bit different. Um, uh, uh, and and the Catholic Labor Network, uh, because of who we are, we have a lot of experience dealing with Catholic institutions around issues of labor and work. Uh, we actually produced an annual report uh, listing the hundreds of Catholic institutions around the country that uh, already have unions representing their employees, whether they're hospitals or uh, colleges or schools. Um, uh, we put that out on Labor Day every year. Um, as a as an opportunity to create a discussion about how we as Catholics can live our social teaching. Now, uh, uh, this uh, what happened at Loyola was part of a um, uh, the Hotel and Food Service Workers Union Unite Here, and uh, um, I have a uh, uh, couple of uh, members of my uh, three members of my board who are actually uh, Unite Here members. Um, uh, a uh, priest named uh, Father Cleet Kiley, who uh, handles their immigration work, and uh, a couple of uh, um, uh, other folks uh, uh, from Unite Here. Uh, Chuck Hendricks, um, uh, who ha handles the food service organizing, is um, was a point person on on, on this campaign. Um, this this was a, a national effort to organize. Uh, college cafeterias, both Catholic and secular, um, that are uh, that were operated by uh, a French multinational, Sodexo Corporation. Uh, Sodexo operates these on contract, and uh, the uh, um, workers at Loyola University uh, wanted to organize to improve their conditions. A lot of them were getting uh, um, 
earning, uh, still earning uh, wages that barely got them out of poverty, uh, and uh, wanted to, uh, they they wanted uh, a, a living wage and decent health care, and felt that organizing was the only way they could get it. Um, as their organizing campaign went on, um, they sought the intervention of the uh, university. Um, uh, asking the university to intervene with the contractor. And the university said, uh, um, took the position, uh, which is uh, fairly common, uh, that uh, because this is a dispute between, the, because the, the civil law looks at this as a dispute between the uh, um, uh, Sodexo, the corporation that actually writes the paychecks for the employees, and the uh, um, employees themselves, that uh, they were obliged to stay out of it. Now, uh, we uh, um, uh, worked with student supporters of the uh, um, campaign and with the union uh, to put together a, a teach-in uh, on the Loyola campus that was focused on reflecting on Catholic social teaching about labor and work why the right to organize uh, is upheld in uh, church doctrine and why it applied in this situation. Uh, the, uh, um, uh, it was, it was a, a, a struggle that the uh, students eventually, uh, or the, not the students and the workers uh, eventually won. Uh, we did not get the uh, um, uh, public intervention of the university um, uh, that we that we hoped for and that we've obtained in some other places. Um, we spend a lot of time, uh, uh, however, the uh, um, uh, workers in the cafeteria did eventually uh, succeed in their campaign. They persuaded uh, Sodexo um, to uh, respect the outcome of a of a card check and to follow a neutrality procedure during the campaign, and they and they won their uh, they won their union. They're in negotiations now. That's great, and and I appreciate that correction. I may have been remembering a a, a different institution because, like you said, uh, the, the, this definitely happened. But um, uh, but yeah, happy to uh. Happy to accept that correction about Loyola specifically, um, <clears throat> and so. Uh, uh, Love to hear that they're in negotiations now that they've uh, they've won their union election, um, but answer. Uh, but you know, I, I wonder how you you would answer that question about some of the Catholic institutions that have engaged in some in in some maybe what we would call union busting activities. Um, uh, how do you? How do you feel like that in those instances they have uh, kind of justified uh, that? Um. Primarily by focusing on uh, the civil law in this country and not on what the church teaches. Um, uh, all too often, when workers at a uh, um, Catholic uh, hospital uh, try to form a union, uh, the hospital administration will hire a union-busting consultant and will fight them every step of the way. Uh, in, in many cases, they'll commit unfair labor practices. Um, this is frequently when we get involved, uh, we'll, uh, organize, uh, we'll send a letter to the, to the CEO, uh, if a ULP is committed, reminding them of Catholic social teaching, uh, 
all too often um, the people running these institutions um, uh, have not been trained in Catholic social doctrine. They've been trained in the same business schools that uh, um, uh, educate the rest of our uh, corporate leadership in this country. And they tend to bring the same viewpoints in there. Much like me in my youth, they've never been exposed to this, this teaching. And uh, we need to organize within the Catholic community uh, to put pressure on them uh, to adhere to Catholic social teaching and, and uh, respect the rights of their workers to organize. It's a special problem in the Catholic schools because the Supreme Court has ruled that uh, under the First Amendment freedom of religion protections, that they are not bound by the National Labor Relations Act. Uh, so uh, school teachers who try to organize uh, have an especially difficult challenge because they have to persuade uh, uh, the uh, administration, which is not uh, uh, subject to the NLRA, uh, to re to recognize and bargain with them. Right. Wow. Right. That's yeah. That's I'm glad you brought that up because obviously that's that's a lot of folks uh, that are in in terms of folks employed by Catholic institutions. I, I imagine school teachers would be a, you know a big chunk of that population. Uh, but something you mentioned that I I wanted to just kind of highlight that I thought was really good is about the idea of organizing within your faith community. And I think that's something that's um, maybe not in in popular consciousness very much, or maybe not something we talk about a lot in terms of the labor movement. But that sort of solidarity within your faith community and, you know, building on those relationships that you already have, that's really important, right? It is, and uh, it's especially the case, again, for us when we're dealing with uh, um, uh, institutions of our own faith, uh, we know that uh, they're more likely to respond to um, what they're hearing from uh, the faithful and from the institutions of the church than uh, they are to uh, um, uh, someone who's, who's uh, outside the church who's criticizing them. They can they can write off, you know, the the usual suspects, but they can't necessarily ignore something that's coming from the Catholic Labor Network or uh, one of the uh, priests who's affiliated with us. Um, I, I should say at the same time that there are also examples uh, on the uh, uh, on the other side of uh, in Catholic institutions that uh, take their uh, faith uh, seriously and try to implement it. Uh, we are based at Georgetown University in uh, Washington, D.C. Um, at the Kalminovitz Initiative for Labor and the Working Poor. Now, over the years, Georgetown University has adopted a series of policies on their labor practices based in Catholic social teaching. Again, they've often been pushed by the students to do this. Um, but uh, in the end, uh, they've come up with what's really a model policy uh, for any contractor who wants to serve uh, the university, uh, and this is, uh, we're talking cleaning and food service contractors as well as any others, uh, they are required to pay a living wage, which is set by the university. Uh, this is in the bid documents if you try to bid on a contract from the university. And you are required to uh, respect the right of your employees to organize. And uh, they uh, have adopted the same position toward their own 
their own direct employees. Uh, so their adjunct faculty have uh, successfully uh, organized in a union, and so have their graduate students. So uh, um, uh, there, there are institutions that that do take this seriously, and uh, we try to uh, encourage others to follow their example. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm glad you brought that up, and yeah, gave that example of what it can look like when when folks do the right thing. Because uh, that's fantastic in terms of dealing with contractors, you know, to the extent that you have to outsource some services, having those stipulations in place that you're actually going to protect a worker's right to organize and you're going to pay them a living wage. That's huge. Right. Huge. Uh, so, yeah, I really. Yeah, I'm proud to hear that for sure. Um, as we kind of wrap things up, I wanted to ask if you had uh, just sort of like a message of solidarity for folks who are not Catholic. Uh, for folks who aren't in that Catholic tradition, but are, you know, concerned about the rights of labor and, you know, the conditions that working people face, uh, you know, what's your what's your message to folks like that? Um, we stand with you. Uh, we are um, uh, promoting worker solidarity uh, in all communities, not just our own. Um, even though uh, this is this is where our uh, work is, uh, um, even though most of our our, our work is performed uh, with fellow Catholics, uh, we are part of a larger coalition called the uh, Interreligious Network for Worker Solidarity, which brings together um, uh, people from other faith traditions who want to uh, um, uh, push forward and uh, promote worker solidarity, and uh, we stand by those who have no faith who are. Uh, willing to support the cause. Clayton, Executive Director of the Catholic Sol uh, Catholic Labor Network, really appreciate your time this morning. Thank you. Thanks Thank so you. Much. Appreciate All right. it. <clears throat> All right, folks, we've got a, another couple of things that we're going to get to, and uh, let's hit this one first. This uh, probably a lot of people have already seen this on Twitter, if you're on Twitter, <clears throat> but it's very great. It is um, David Zaslav, who is the Warner Brothers CEO, giving a commencement address at Boston University. Uh, as you know, writers at Warner Brothers and other institutions are on strike right now because uh, they are uh, uh, the you know corporate elite in the entertainment industry are not paying them enough, and so they went on strike. And so they're still on strike, and he is one of their bosses. And so this is the... Uh, um, the way that he was greeted at Boston University. You want to be successful, you're going to have to figure out how to get along with everyone. And that includes difficult people. Some people... Some people will be looking for a fight. Yeah, that's great. Uh, that's really great. Uh, they should, you know, I mean, freaks like that, they, they, it, whenever they're out in public, they should, you know, feel embarrassed uh, and they should be embarrassed. And so we love to see that over at Boston University. Really appreciate that solidarity with the uh, with the writer strike. And you just know that, you know, folks like him, uh, the idea that you're going to be disrespected in public is just so 
Uh, you know, I mean, that's... I bet it eats them up. Oh, yeah. I'm sure it does. No yeah. doubt about that at all. So, uh, you know, I don't really have just a whole lot to say about it other than uh, hell yeah. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And want to send uh, our solidarity with the writers. Uh, there was an art- article that came out from the AV Club about this commencement uh, speech and, and him getting booed. And I wanted to just pull out this quote. This is a man who was put in charge of a massive media empire, and the most notable things he has done with that power are burn money, dismantle one of the most prestigious brands in entertainment, double dip on promoting J.K. Rowling, kick off the now common trend of studios deleting content from their streaming services and making it completely inaccessible in some cases, and, how can we forget, driving the writers who make his shows and movies to go on a strike that may soon lead to similar strikes from the DGA and SAG-AFTRA, that would render Hollywood completely motionless. So that is the guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, really, why Boston University would choose him to speak is kind of a middle finger, I think, to the workers. Absolutely. Um, <clears throat> and, you know, I also listened to a good episode of Counterspin this week on the writer's strike, and they were looking at the ways in which media reports on strikes. Uh mm. And the ways in which corporate media typically has this framing of, you know, a strike is kind of like an interruption. Mm. It's an inconvenience. Right. Uh, and they often take framing uh, that is pro-boss, pro-management, uh, you know, especially when it's workers like Hollywood writers, right? They can, they, anytime they can sort of be like, oh, well, they have a cool job. They have a mm. fun job. They have an interesting job. You know, they get to play a sport. They get to right. write stuff. Uh, there's always those like divisive, you know, little tactics, I think, in the rhetoric around it. Uh, yeah. But it seems to me like there has been some, uh, you know, national consciousness around this strike. Um and maybe some of the media organizing over the last few years is starting to pay off as well because more and more folks are being, uh, you know, doused with the uh, with the struggle. Uh, more and more people are in the struggle uh, and in labor struggle themselves as writers, whether they're working in right. various digital media outlets or now, you know, uh, this WGA strike with the Hollywood writers. And so I think you're going to see more and more folks who are, you know, militant coming out of it. And it'll be interesting to see the relationship with, you know, yeah, these other unions and their struggles and, and how those play out with the actors, the directors, um, you know, and then in a year or two, IATSE as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it could be, a, could be a big thing. Um, so we'll see. We'll see what happens. Um, definitely all solidarity to them. And screw David Zaslav. Absolutely. Uh, so the last thing that I wanted to talk to talk about is another article from McKenna Schuler in the Orlando Weekly. She's a staff writer for them, and she just continues to put out really good stuff that is, you know, I mean, just hitting hitting stories from angles that other people in the media are not going to be looking at it from, and then also, you know, coming out. Uh, um, thinking about totally new stories that uh, that other people in the me- media aren't talking about. And the thing that she uh, wrote an article about last week was the Florida Department of Labor, or the lack of one. 
because in the early 2000s, Jeb Bush, please clap, uh, he <laughs> abolished the Department of Labor and Economic Security. And uh, they completed that uh, demolition in 2002. Um, and since then, they're just in the state of Florida, according to McKenna Schuler, there has not really been much debate about a resurrection of the Department of Labor or what consequences there have been because of a lack of a Department of Labor. And so uh, she digs into a little bit of the wage theft issue. And this is something that we have talked about over and over on the show. Multiple studies have shown that uh, wage theft is, in fact, uh a larger issue than basically all other property theft combined. And that uh, wage theft, uh, you know, she says in her article, can encompass everything from failing to pay workers <clears throat> at least minimum wage, so that's paying them below minimum wage, or uh, stealing a worker's tips, failing to pay overtime, asking employees to work off the clock before or after their shift ends, um, and it's just really any kind of underpayment uh, other than what has been agreed to, uh, other than what the worker is legally entitled to. And so she cites a, uh, a study by the Economic Policy Institute that showed that between 2017 and 2020, more than $3 billion in stolen wages were recovered by the U.S. Department of Labor and state departments of labor. Uh, so this is just the... You know, uh, we all understand that wage theft is a much bigger problem than actually what gets recovered by these departments, right? Most of it, it goes unreported. Uh, a lot of times people don't even know that they're being stolen from, that their bosses are stealing from them every day. And they don't realize it. Um, but the issue, uh, w one issue that arises because Florida's Department of, Florida does not have a Department of Labor is that, yes, the U.S. Department of Labor can enforce minimum wage laws, but only the federal minimum wage. And so they cannot enforce Florida's state minimum wage, which is higher than the federal minimum wage at $11 an hour to be $12 an hour next year and $15 an hour by 2026. So the U.S. Department of Labor has no authority to enforce the state's minimum wage. And uh, a 2021 report from the Florida Policy Institute shared that minimum wage violations in Florida doubled after the state raised its minimum wage in 2005, now affecting 17% of Floridians' low-wage workforce, or roughly a quarter million Florida workers each year on average. I mean, this is just a really, really big thing. And so, you know, so here we have a higher state minimum wage, but we don't have a Department of Labor to enforce it. And so what do you do? Well, you can't file a complaint with the U.S. Department of Labor because as, as long as you're over 725, then they, they can't do anything for you. And so the only thing that is left is you can secure a lawyer yourself and sue them in court, which, you know, of course, somebody making less than $11 an hour, it's going to be super easy for them to hire an attorney, right? Right. right. I mean, no issue there. Uh, other than that, you can file a complaint with the state attorney general, although she notes that neither attorney general Ashley Moody nor her predecessor have prioritized the enforcement of wage and uh, hour violations. And in fact... From 2011 to 2016, Florida failed to take a single action against any employer 
to wow. enforce wage and hour laws. That means if we are to believe Florida's politicians that between 2011, uh, 2011 and 2016, there were just simply no, uh, you know, no employer violated the law with respect to minimum wages. Wow. Know? So uh, <laughs> really crazy. But a records request showed that actually the attorney general's office did receive 29 complaints from 2016 to 2019 and took normal, no formal action. Therefore, recovering no money for the Floridians who file, who went the step to file a complaint with the attorney general. Mm. Wild. In comparison, the state of New York filled 6,000 complaints in 2017 alone. Um, you know, I mean, it's really, really wild stuff here. Yeah, I mean, this is this is the kind of government they want, right? This yeah. is the kind of government that they create, one that does not do anything on behalf of working people. Uh, and so when they come to us and say, well, we need to cut taxes, we need to cut government because government's broken, a lot of people are going to be receptive to that because government is broken in many ways mm -hmm. in their lives. And so this is a great example of this where you can have bosses in Florida cheat you on your wages and what the hell is going to be done about it? Right. Um, Nothing. And, you know, of course, the attorney general, I would imagine is probably a lot more interested in her campaign donors mm. than, you know, workers who are getting screwed over, right. you know, a dollar an hour. A right. dollar um, an hour that makes a big difference in their life, uh, but would be meaningless to the wealthy oligarchs who actually who run Who are stealing stuff. it. Right. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's uh, So, yeah, uh, credit to McKenna Schuler for this good reporting. Really appreciate that. Uh, but, yeah, this is this is the sort of government that the far right wants in this country, mm -hmm. um, one that can uphold corporate power and exploitation, uh, one that drives wedges in between people through oppressive uh, policies and through appeals to bigotry. It's really, it's, uh, it's disturbing. And I, I hope that workers in Florida can organize and start to you know, really counter this trend because Florida right. has moved in the wrong direction. Uh, and there's a lot that needs to be done there. So I really hope that the workers there uh, can build a movement that can really start to make progress. Yep, absolutely. Uh, so that's all I had. Adam, did you have any plugs you wanted to get to before we wrapped up today? Uh, I think that's it. I just want to remind folks, uh, we do have Shop Talk on Thursday mornings. And so check that out. If you missed it this week, we had a great interview with Ben Wilkins, who was the editor of Ann Braden Speaks. Uh I was not super familiar with Ann Braden, her life or legacy before this interview, uh, or before we scheduled this interview. So it was a it was a real treat to learn more about her life. She was a total badass. Uh, so yeah, check out this week's shop talk if you missed it. Uh, next Thursday we'll have Chris Townsend on to talk about some of the books he's been uncovering mm. and getting republished, books that are really you know have a lot of important things to say about the labor movement, things that we can learn. So, uh, yeah, looking forward to that. We've got a really great guest scheduled next weekend. We've got Adolph Reed Jr. planning to be on the show. Uh, awesome. And uh, really looking forward to that. We're going to talk about The South, his new book, The South, and also The South in general. Uh, and so looking forward to that interview. 
and we've got some great guests lined up this summer. So, yeah, y'all just stay tuned. Check out our website, tvlr.fm. Make sure you're signed up for our email list on there. Um, and, yeah, don't forget to like and share and subscribe and just tell people about the Valley Labor Report. Just help us spread the word. We appreciate it. Yep. All right, folks, that's going to be it for us today. Make sure you tune in to uh, Shop Talk with Adam on Thursday morning at 930. Till then, all power to the workers.